and welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild places of the North Oregon coast. Um, I'm on KMUN here. I'm Jessica Schleif. My co-host, Teresa Retzlaff, is having the week off. I'm in Shively Park on a beautiful, rainy, sunny day. Uh, and I'm joined by Jesse Jones. Uh, Jesse Jones is the volunteer coordinator for Coast Watch. Um, she was a watershed council coordinator when I first met her. Uh, she's the chair of the North Oregon Coast Chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. And she's a person that I have an incredible amount of respect for, for the work that she does out in our natural world. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to In Season and welcome to KMUN. I know you've been on the radio a number of times before. I kind of, uh, I wanted to invite you here. And it's so beautiful that we're up here at Shively, just sitting in one of these shelters, getting to have a, a chat. I, I wanted to invite you here to kind of talk about your, your history here on the coast. And yeah, it's, tell me about growing up here. Tell me about where you grew up and, and what were some of your first water connections in this area, what what really stopped you and and brought you into the present moment with water? Well, thank you for asking <laughs> and having me here and being curious about this question of water in my life. Um, I I I love talking about water, and I have been either employed in some way in most of my life since college, um, working with and around water and also volunteering for organizations that focus on water. But my first uh, sort of um, impression of the power of water, I think, is where it might have all started. And it's a good time of year to be talking about that since we're just um, we just entered the three to four months of the king tides and the power of the water is, you can see it now. And um, so it's an interesting time to be talking about water. And my first real experience um, was a flood. And I grew up on the north coast or the north, um, the north Nahalem, the upper Nahalem River um, mm -hmm. on the north coast in the coastal range and about 60 miles away from where we're sitting right now um, as the crow flies in between here and Portland. And my childhood home was literally on the banks of the Nahalem River in the floodplain of the upper Nahalem River on Lone Pine Road. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a single pine tree, it's still there. And Every year, after the rains would come down the hills and after the rains would start, November, December, January, into February, March, the river would swell. Uh -huh. And I could see it flooding from my bedroom window. And it would flood a few times a week. It would cover our road. Um, 
not too bad, but it would always come right up to the edge. Uh -huh. And then a few times a year it would go over that edge. And this beautiful river was my river. I mean, I spent time in it in the summertime. Um, I could see salmon spawning in the riffles, not right in front of my house, not from my bedroom window, but about 50 yards downstream. Wow. In front of my window, in the summertime, the water would stay about two feet deep. You could still see the bedrock sticking out. But about, yeah, 50 yards down, there were riffles, and that's where... What is a riffle? A riffle is the... Riffles are where the water is shallow and kind of rushing over the rocks. And it's so shallow. I mean, it's maybe, you know, an inch an inch deep in the summertime. Uh -huh. The areas, the low areas of the river. Okay. And they're important because that's where the, in this case, the wild coho and um, dig their reds with their, with their bodies. So they're these gravelly areas where the water gets low and is cold and it flows fast. And there's oftentimes what you call seeps coming in sometimes in these areas too, but all up and down um, salmon bearing streams or little seeps of water can also kind of come out from underneath where those where the gravels are but it's basically so you had an awareness of when the salmon were coming and you'd actually go down there and check it out yeah but not because my parents were fishermen or anything like that uh -huh. they weren't even the ones that pointed it out to me first it was I could hear the noise. I've spent a lot of time in the summertime and I could hear them making a splash, like Ooh. 12 of them, you know, at a time. I could see them just, and they were massive. I mean, they're like two feet long and um, just these heavy, and I've, I've never been a fisher person, but seen these massive creatures. Yeah, yeah. And then unfortunately, one of my, I think I was telling you a little bit earlier, one of my neighbors, um, one year uh, was shooting them with her rifle, kill them as they were. Oh, you started to say beds. that, but you didn't actually. <laughs> yeah. For food? No, because they were scaring her dogs and she was a dog breeder. Oh. And so it was pretty shocking. It was searing in my mind. Um, I mean, she only got three of them before my mom convinced her that it was not the right thing to do <laughs> and what they were doing. So I think my mom explained to my neighbor what was happening. And that's how I learned what they were doing. Right, so educating about the life cycle and... Yeah, yeah. part of it. I didn't learn a lot, a lot of that until much later, when um, about, a lot about the life cycle and other amazing creatures' life cycles, mm -hmm. like the life story of the freshwater mussel, which is my favorite life, life story, but it's connected to the life cycle of the salmon. I didn't learn all of that until much much later. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, so in school, in school there, where you grew up by this river, was there any, um, was there any education about the water at that time for you in no. the school? No, no. I went to school in the seventies and eighties in Vernonia. Right. And we didn't have a connection to the land except through logging. Uh -huh. um, and a lot of the fishermen I knew were fishing in the ocean. They were ocean fishing, so they were driving to the coast. Right. Um, but there wasn't. I didn't know 
a lot of my native plants growing up. I knew mm -hmm. some things, but I knew more about blueberries. I knew all about um, trillium and that we shouldn't pick them. Uh -huh. I knew some things were sacred. I knew about chanterelles. I knew about some things, but not about the life cycle of salmon, not how important it was, not how special that Upper Nehalem Valley is. Yeah. The mountains there, the high valleys of that upper north coast range are just, they are places where the salmon come home, or they used to. Mm -hmm. When I was little, there were um, Pacific lamprey in the upper Nehalem River. I've seen brook lamprey now in a place called Maple Creek, which is um, out Highway 202 in the foothills of the Saddle Mountain. But when I was growing up, and my sister can back this up, we felt them and saw them. You know, the first time was they were slithering Des through my legs Describe a lamprey house. for people. I mean, I think of a, an it's a eel. Fish. But it eel, looks I, like I, an it eel. looks like an eel, but it's not, is it? But it's an anadromous fish that spawns and returns and dies just like salmon do. They're fascinating, fascinating mm -hmm. creatures. Um, and they are here still, but you don't see the Pacific so much. Mm -hmm. they, they always have been and still are a food source for Native Americans in Oregon and elsewhere in Oregon. If you go to the Bonneville Dam, you can see them alive, just uh, sucking their way up over the dam in these specially engineered chambers for them to move and go upstream. So, but you don't see them so much here anymore. So you have this upbringing in this beautiful place with um, habitat that is still intact. And when you go on to pursue education out of the area, do you, do you choose, what did you decide to study in college? <laughs> I have to make the question so complicated. I'm like, how the heck did you start doing the work, girl? <laughs> well, first, I, I really wanted to study film and make documentary films to help change. Uh, behavior and communications and to help change things for the better mm -hmm. communities like Vernonia. And um, so I did. I went to film school for a while and I made some documentary films back in the day just when everything was changing to digital, so like in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I, I might not be able to make money at this and I was a young mother and so I went to school for community development. Okay, so that was your initial leading into... Mm -hmm. Human communities. I wanted to learn about how humans worked together to make change in their communities. How did that happen? So mm -hmm. studying a lot of case studies, like globally, locally and globally, and learning about community-led groups and nonprofits and um, non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. How they worked, how they were funded, how they paid people, 
how they operated, why, where did they come from. Each one of them had a different cause and a different mission, and I was fascinated with those groups that did that kind of a, kind of a thing. And so you work in school towards this idea of being able to make a difference in some way in a community. How did you end up back here on the North Coast and, and what are some of the activities, the organizing that you've put your time and energy into here? Well, in 2006, I, I, I was in grad school actually, studying natural resource policy and I got a job offer from the city of Vernonia when I went there to talk to the city manager about how the city was operating. I was looking, I was looking a bit deeper, you know, because I was studying natural resource policy. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up getting offered a job managing a large community development block grant to build a community learning center. Just from going in and, and starting a conversation. Yeah. Seeing that it was a small th town. They knew me. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Not, they hadn't known me since I was younger. They hadn't they hadn't kept in touch with the city government. You know, while I was going to school at Portland State University, but. I did go back after I had graduated and let them know that I was studying, um, you know, kind of, uh, policy for my my master's degree, and um, yeah, they had a project they needed help with, and so I started there. And then my first job, really with water, was working was well. I connected the watershed, the Upper Nahalem Watershed Council, with the community learning center. And I worked with the coordinator there, Maggie Payton, who is still the Watershed Council coordinator of the Upper Nahalem Watershed Council. Hey, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's actually the longest serving Watershed Council um, coordinator in Oregon. I think she's been there for 25 years or something like that. And we started working together. Um, I started supporting her programs, which were just you know, she had been doing, you know, a few things there, but really kind of helping her. And then I ended up working for Maggie and doing outreach along the, all over the upper Nahalem Valley, along many creeks um, and rivers, along the main stem of the Nahalem and then along many others. And um, working with landowners to cooperate with the Watershed Council to help to cool their streams. Mm -hmm. Started learning about, this would have been in 2007, started learning about climate change, warming rivers, warming oceans, and so I eventually found my way here and started working for the Clatsop Soil Water Conservation District, doing more outreach with landowners along rivers and streams and estuaries um, to uh, try to work with them to implement um, water quality uh, saving measures on mm -hmm. their lands. Mm -hmm. All kinds of ideas and um, 
uh, tools available to them. So sort of, sort of hooking them up with grants, hooking them up with with tools that could help them to keep the water clean on their land. Would this be property owners that were coming to you, or would you actually do outreach into the areas where you were looking at these waterways? That's a great question. I did both. So I, wouldn't, I would actually knock on doors, call people, write letters, uh, do interviews like this. I mean, at the time, Dave Ambrose and I were working together. He's the one who hired me, and we mm -hmm. worked together to do this work. Um, it was fascinating and hard and frustrating, and sometimes uh, we made progress um, with the landowners here and all the way out to Napa. Um, and yeah, some people would call. We would have, you know, they, they would call us. They would hear about these programs from their neighbors, their farmer neighbors, or other agriculture workers, or family members, or they would see something in the paper. If we had new grants to give, we would announce it. Sure. And then eventually found my way to uh, become the coordinator of four watershed councils on the North Coast, from all the way from Ecola Creek and Cannon Beach up here to Young's Bay and, and skipping on River and then out to Little Creek and Big Creek out in the Napa area. Mm -hmm. And I coordinated four groups of volunteers made up of stakeholders from all over this region to choose and um, find money for and then implement uh, salmon habitat restoration projects on the North Coast. I did that for a few years, and now I'm, I've made my way to the edge, and I'm working with volunteers along the entire coast of Oregon um, for an organization called Coast Watch. And my job with this one is not so much projects. I've been doing so many projects and hiring contractors all these years. And I, although I did work with a lot of students as well and did some, I'm proud of some wonderful partnerships that um, I did in the Vernonia area with a, a native plant nursery grant that I wrote um, with the BLM funded Bureau of Land Management. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a nursery a native plant nursery on the new school uh, property of Vernonia, the school that was moved after the flood in 2007, deemed all of those uh, those school buildings in the low-lying floodplain of downtown Vernonia. Um, they are now completely gone, and the whole entire school is rebuilt. And there's a native plant nursery and Maggie's office, the Upper New Haven Watershed Council office, is all at the school. And, and so that, are the students actually working within the... Yeah, with the oh. Watershed Council. They volunteer, and I'm not sure where programs are at right now because of COVID, but right. that was the idea that the students would have access to learn about botany and about trees and about salmon habitat restoration. Oh, um, Jesse. They're on the site. And so that was something that Maggie and I did, and that was one of my most favorite projects. But now I don't do so many physical projects or grant writing and outreach um, with, uh, with folks. I, I do a lot of outreach, but I work mainly with volunteers um, on the coast of Oregon to collect data, um, to collect information about a specific mile that they choose. So all the way from Astoria, all the way to the California border, there are miles of, on the Oregon coast available for adoption. And you can 
uh, choose a mile, and then I work with you to connect you with scientists and researchers to do as many surveys as you want on your mile. So the idea is to have um, these citizen science and community, community scientists um, all along the Oregon coast going once a month, collecting data of, for example, king tides, how far in do they reach, take a photo. Um, so this is somewhere on, on the coast. You, you, you look at a piece of land. And a piece you would, of beach. A piece of beach. Or a rocky shore. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you would be able to adopt and kind of steward and test and observe that stretch of land? Yeah, and I coordinate, wow. I coordinate each mile with whoever and sometimes it's a group, sometimes it's an mm -hmm. individual, sometimes people do it for years and then stop, sometimes people do it once and then stop, sometimes they do it once a month. We ask people to do it four times a year. And then the other part of my job is then getting these folks trained to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I train them on the beach. Sometimes I get researchers and scientists to train them on the beach if there's a deeper protocol. And because I'm not a scientist, I'm not a marine biologist, that was what I always wanted to be, but <laughs> even though you specialist. do, yeah, I know. But even though you do so much water testing yeah. and so much so work this, with the, my position is needed to link to link those that um, need to do the work. You're a bridger. You're a bridger. You're providing a bridge. Mm -hmm. The story about um, you know where you came from, and then the fact that that school now is mentoring young people to be able to know their native plants and understand their environment a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe know the stories and that, that is a powerful circle there. Mm -hmm. And this work that you're doing now with the Coast Watch, that is so, I actually didn't understand that people could individually adopt like that. I was picturing you running around and having to do all these different, having volunteers, but not, um, you're kind of saying that these citizen scientists can go ahead and, and take the tools and the training that you're giving them yeah. and do this themselves. Themselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we need that. We need so many more. I mean, I know that there are wonderful groups around here. Um, everyone is looking for volunteers. And it's really the way that we can take care of things ourselves. There's so many opportunities to get dialed into um, with the Watershed Council, with national parks, mm -hmm. with the North Coast um, Wildlife Refuge, the Bird Sanctuary out on mm -hmm. 202. There are so many ways to get involved and um, take, you know, do survey. Surveys are. Um, you are watching something, there's something that you're paying attention to and you're writing that down and you're typing that in and you're uploading that information to a website. And so surveys and monitoring, there's so much that can be done. So it can be done once a month. It can take one or two hours of your time. Sure, and this is something that we could add into our hiking or our outdoor activities that mm -hmm. we're doing right now. Yeah, it works great simultaneous outdoor recreation. And it's great. Is this something, I mean, I'm familiar with the, like the iNaturalist mm -hmm. app and some of those things, uh, really thinking about pollinators. 
Mm. And that kind of, and I actually have never participated, but I think about it and I think what, a, you know, we all have these phones. We all have these phones, so why not um, be yeah. able to use them as tools? Exactly. iNaturalist is a great um, uh, tool to use for taking a photo and uploading that. Now it gets, it's, so what's happening now, so yes, I spend a lot of time actually working with specific researchers for their protocols and everyone has a different way of up uploading data. But what's happening with iNaturalist, it's really cool. So there are specific projects that you can become involved in. So there's one called Primed, for example. I can't remember exactly, it's P-R-I-M-E-D. Um, they're a group of researchers and scientists who are wanting people to take photographs of any marine diseases they see. Because one of the things that I train and work with scientists and researchers on is how to identify wasting sea stars. This is just one okay. of many projects yeah. we have. Yeah. Um, the Prime Group has a specific project on iNaturalist. And I can't remember what that's called, but I just interviewed them, and there is a show on my YouTube about this, on the Coastwatch YouTube. Okay. Um, and uh, you can go to a specific project when you're on iNaturalist. So when you get onto iNaturalist, you could have your own account and you could upload your own, I see this mussel. I see this sea slug, also known as a nudibranch. Uh -huh. I see this piece of kelp. I see this jellyfish. What is this? You could just take photos, and a lot of people do, and you have your own account, and um, you think you know what it's called, you type that in, and then you get folks commenting back, okay, yes, this is a, um, this is a shaggy mouse nudibranch, for example. But you can also be a part of a specific project on iNaturalist. So that goes beyond just you uploading what you're seeing and seeing if you're right, and actually uploading those two. I think those go to a map so you can see what is in this specific area or this area where you are. But you can also go to specific projects on iNaturalist. So, so, so look for projects in your area, um, and there are a few of those. But also, we also just work with um, you, like for the, the King Tides Project, for example, mm -hmm. the OregonKingTides.net. They don't have an iNaturalist page, but they have an excellent web page, recently updated. Um, Coastwatch has been their partner for 11 years, Oregon King Tides Project, the Oregon Coast Management Program. And they have a website where you get home and you upload your photos. Um, and that is a wonderful project as well. And that is a, another project where in that one, you are reporting tides that you see, how, how high they come up, how far of a reach they have. And then other times of the year, so it's not just high tides, they also, or king tides, they also want you to look at, in the, get the same, like the photo point in the same place and of a regular high tide. Okay. So that we can see the growth, the increase of um, tides every year, see if they actually are changing. This is just, I, I, I thank you so much for, for sharing some of these opportunities that people can take. If people wanted to um, make contact with the Coast Watch program, what would, how would they do that? I guess people can just Google things now, can't yeah, they? Yeah, but it's pretty easy. So it's oregonshores.org 
forward slash Coastwatch. And Oregon Shores is actually, that's the parent organization. Coastwatch is a project at Oregon Shores. And Coastwatch has been around for maybe 26 years. Um, OregonShores.org is celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Wow. And I love working for this organization. I'm proud to work for them because they, the folks at Oregon Shores, it started after the beach bill became law. And the founders of Oregon Shores were the original um, uh, folks who worked to pass the legislation on the beach bill. Desi Jones, thank you so much for coming to KMUN and talking with us about your journey and your work with water. And I really enjoyed it. And this could have been a whole nother show also. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.